0: This morning we will be reading from Psalms 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. These are the words of the living God.
1: Let's pray. Fathers, we open your word and seek to understand and seek to hear truth from you. Father, we ask that uh, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate these words. Father, I pray that you would keep me from error, and I ask that you would still my troubled soul. Father, help me to apply the words of this song. This morning, Father, I want to hope in you. Father, I want to see you praised. Father, I want your presence. Father, I pray that as your word goes forth from this pulpit, Father, that it would find good soil in our hearts. And Father, I pray the same for all of the churches in this city Pray that the gospel would be preached and that hearts would be transformed by it. Father, we lift up Pastor Nick Marks to you of Northeast Baptist Church in Portland. Father, we ask that you would strengthen him as he pr- prays and preaches and sings with your people this morning at that church. Father, we pray that you would give him power and boldness as he speaks your words to your people. And Father, do the same here this morning. I ask this in the name of your son Jesus and for his glory, amen. You may be seated. In 1730, Roman Catholic authorities in southern France arrested a 15-year-old girl named Marie Durand. They imprisoned her in the Tower of Constance. Her crime? Well, her brother Pierre was a Protestant minister, and they held underground worship services in their home and in the surrounding mountains. Marie was among 40 other women held in the tower. They slept on the floor in an upper chamber chamber The only light entered through narrow window shafts in the stone walls around the perimeter. There was a hole with a grate in the middle of the room that drew smoke from the guard room below. The women sweltered in the summer's heat and shuddered in the winter's cold. To gain her freedom, Marie had to do only one thing, kiss the crucifix and recant her Protestant beliefs. But Marie refused. She refused not just for a week of imprisonment, not just for a month, or even for a year. Marie Duran held her convictions in that dungeon for 38 years. In fact, during those years, she scratched into the rock floor the French word for resist, a daily reminder of James 4, 7, to submit to God and resist the devil. Those letters etched in stone are still visible today. Tourists can visit the tower and see for themselves the evidence of this teenager's mettle. Young Marie became within the confines of those walls a ray of sunshine to her fellow prisoners. She nursed the diseased. She wrote letters for those who couldn't write or couldn't see. One of the prisoners was blind. She guided them spiritually. She sang hymns with them and of particular interest to us this morning, she read psalms out loud to them every evening. Thirty-six women were eventually released from the tower on the day after Christmas in 1767. Marie stepped out of the prison, a sickly old woman of 53, and she died about eight years later. A somewhat later account of this comes from a minister in Paris who possessed the actual psalter Marie read from in prison. The psalter, he said, I can never touch without emotion, for it belonged to a girl who was arrested at the age of 15 for having gone to worship in the mountains and who was shut up in the famous tower of Constance where she remained for 40 years and where one winter's night she had her foot half-eaten by a rat. There on those pages, you can clearly see the traces of her tears chiefly on some of the psalms, such as Psalm 42, where the psalmist says he will Once more, go to the tabernacle of the Lord and sing his praises to the great congregation. When we hear stories like Marie Duran's, we shouldn't simply say, "Well, well, my problems are small compared to hers. It could always be a lot worse, so I'll just stop my belly aching. No, there's so much more for us to learn from the accounts of suffering men and women of the faith. When you hear about a woman who broke her neck in a diving accident at 17 years of age, paralyzed from the neck down, in a wheelchair for more than 40 years, don't just tell yourself, oh, I should stop griping about my back pain or my job at the factory or, in the words of our missionary, Kurt Jones, your idiot husband. No, we need to go further in and we need to ask, how Is it that Johnny Erickson Tata gets through another day after 40 years in a wheelchair? And how did Marie Duran endure 38 years in that dungeon without giving up her convictions? What weapons did they possess in their spiritual arsenal that kept them from utter despair? It's true, your suffering might not include a wheelchair or a prison or having your foot half eaten by a rat, but you will suffer. To one degree or another, you and I will suffer in this life. So let's learn something this morning of how to suffer well. And let's do that, one, so we can fortify our souls against utter despair. Because it will come in two Let us learn something from Psalm 42 so that we can be of help to our hurting brothers and sisters. Psalms 42 is a help for us. For this message, I've combined Psalm 42 and 43. And I know that some of you are thinking, Tate, you you can barely get through two verses in the course of a sermon. There is no way you're going to make it through two chapters but I'm going to try because I see at least three reasons that these psalms should be handled as a single unit. First, there are five sections in the book of Psalms. Psalm 42 is the first of a series of eight uh, psalms that form the opening of book two. Each of those, Psalm 42 through 49, have titles that indicate they were written by the sons of Korah. Psalm 43 is the only exception. So it appears that they were originally connected as they, are, as they actually are in some Hebrew manuscripts. Second, Psalm 43 uses the same refrain or chorus that's used twice in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's found in 42 verses 5 and 11, and then we see it again at the close of chapter 43. Third, both of the psalms and their common chorus identify the very same longing of the author. That longing is to be in the presence of God and to give Him praise. In Psalm 42, the psalmist laments the fact that he cannot gather and worship in God's presence. In Psalm 43, the psalmist prays for God to bring him to the holy hill, to God's dwelling, to the place of his presence. And then he says, I'll go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise him. And the chorus announces the same longing, for I shall again praise him. So for those reasons, we're going to take Both chapters together, combined, it's structured like this. Verses 1 through 4 are a lament. A lament is a passionate or an emotional expression of grief or sorrow. So, Verses 1 through 4 are a poem or a song of lament. Verse 5 is the chorus to the lament. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Verses 6 through 10 is another lament. And then the chorus in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Chapter 43, verses 1 through 4 is a prayer that has elements of lament. And then verse 5 concludes the whole with the same chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? So that's the high-level overview. We have a four-verse lament in a chorus, a five-verse lament in a chorus, and then a four-verse prayer in the same chorus. So let's open our text. The psalmist begins his first lament with an image, a word picture meant to prick our senses and to make us feel something of the grief and the sorrow he is experiencing, The psalmist's entire being, that's what the word soul means here, his entire being heaves and yearns for something, something that he believes that he cannot live without. This man's very existence depends upon obtaining this one thing. If he can't get it, he simply cannot go on. The comparison he makes is of a deer and that's worth noting it's not of a camel suited for such extreme environments this picture could be of a drought that left stream beds and watering holes full of nothing but cracked mud or it could be the image of an animal being hunted down by a predator and overtaken by exhaustion in either case If the beast cannot quench its thirst, it will collapse and death will most certainly follow. That's how the psalmist feels. And few of us have lived in such darkness and lived and longed for survival with such violence as this man tries to express here with these words. I imagine Marie Durand felt this way many times, and I also believe that she took great comfort From words like these. But what was the object of this man's longing, this man's thirst, the thing that he must have or else die? Verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? The object of his longing was his God. Though his entire being was heaving, his was, a pri- was primarily a spiritual yearning, a desperate longing or craving for the presence of his God. Surely he longed for the temple the place of God's special presence for this nation and at that time in history. But this man's desperation runs deeper than a mere location. He weeps over his loss. He is physically overwhelmed with sorrow at the seeming loss of the presence of his God. Verse 3, "'My tears have been my food day and night.'" While they, that is my enemies, say to me all the day long, where is your God? And at this moment, he doesn't seem to have an answer for them. Their taunt hits their target. It's worth mentioning the lovely poetic links between this verse and the two that came before it. The cool flowing streams for which the deer thirsts become the hot, salty tears running down the cheeks and into the corners of the mouth of a distraught man. His tears are his food. They're what he eats every day and every night in his grief. Then he recalls the way things used to be. Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Well, he remembers when he entered the special place of God's presence and worshiped. It's fascinating. He reflects here not merely on his individual times of worship in the temple but his worship with the congregation. And take note of the manner in which this man worshiped. This was no solemn assembly. It was glad shouts and songs of praise and celebration. That's how the psalmist, in his depression, recalled the times of worship in the assembly. We can sum up the psalmist's first lament like this. Three P's. This man was desperate for the presence of his God so that he could praise his God with the people of God. He was desperate for the presence of his God so he could praise his God with the people of God. And then he launches into the chorus, and we'll come back to the chorus shortly. Verse 6 through 10 make up His second lament. Verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. The word therefore here is important. The psalmist is spiritually depressed. I believe that's what the great 20th century preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, called this. Spiritual depression. Therefore, his suffering drove him to remember his God. It's possible that the psalmist here was in in exile somewhere to the north, what they called the land of Jordan and near the mountains of Hermon. But the reference to Mount Mizar is curious. In Hebrew, it means little hill. It might be his poetic way of contrasting The place of his exile or captivity, the little hill with God's dwelling, the massive Mount Zion, the holy hill that we'll see in the following chapter, the place where this man longs to go. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The sound of the throngs worshiping in the temple turned to the sound, the deafening sound of waterfalls and rapids and waves. He's returning to the language of water. Only now it's not the lack of liquid he has in view. It's quite opposite. Waterfalls and breakers and waves, trouble after trouble. Relentless assaults by the enemy, pounding him like waves in the ocean or rapids in the river, threatening to push him under and take his life. Fascinating, though. The psalmist seems to know quite clearly that his troubles ultimately come from the hand of his God. He pours out his heart to God and says, they are your waterfalls, your breakers, and your ways. What a remarkable acknowledgement of the providence of God over the evils that have befallen this man. It reminds me of the letter Sarah Edwards wrote shortly after her husband Jonathan died unexpectedly away from home in 1758. These are the words she wrote to her daughter, Esther. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him for so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and love to be your ever-affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. To maintain that mindset Amid pain and suffering and loss requires grace and a rock-solid hope in your God. Sarah was merely following the lead of the psalmist in acknowledging not only God's providence over her suffering, but also his goodness in it. As she said, he can have her heart. She can hope in him. Verse 8, by the day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. It seems as if the psalmist is waffling. He remembers, and yet he is in such pain. In verse 9, he resumes his lament. He feels as if God has abandoned him, and he weeps as his enemies continue to batter him. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? This man's first lament was a cry of desperation for the presence of God so that he could praise his God with the people of God, His second lament, though, he stays fixated on the presence of God in the midst of his exile and darkness and what appears to be abandonment by his God. He says, My troubles come at me like waves. I'm overwhelmed. Where are you, God? I know you're the God of steadfast love, but have you forgotten me? I'm grieving here. My enemies won't let up, and they're even questioning your power to save me. Where are you? And so those are the soul-crushing laments of a man near utter despair. So what are we to do with this? Every person in this room has had painful things happen in their lives. Things worthy of lament, the death of a child, the loss of a job, skin cancer, divorce, a daughter that left the faith, a son addicted to drugs. So what are we to do? How can this psalm help us when those dark clouds roll in once again and threaten to overwhelm us? Well, fortunately, this song is not merely a lament. This man doesn't just dump on us emotionally and leave us feeling pity for him or worse, feeling more depressed about our own situation. No, the psalmist shows us the path forward, the path he took. He shows us weapons for our spiritual armory. The fight against despair and suffering is a battle. This is war. So let's take up our weapons. The first weapon is this. Appeal to your heart to hope. Appeal to your heart to hope. When the phone rings in the middle of the night and the news is exactly as you feared. When you can't sleep because your mind is in turmoil over the situation at the office or with your husband or at the church When you wake up and the pain you've endured for six long years is still there. Or even worse, it's worse than it was yesterday. Appeal to your heart. Reason with your soul. Listen to the chorus that our suffering psalmist sang after each one of his laments. Verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. We must reason with our souls. We must put our hope in the proper place. I believe that the degree to which you are discouraged or depressed or fearful about your circumstances is the degree to which you have placed your hope somewhere other than God. But you say, without a job, I I can't keep my house or feed my family. That's a real problem. But where is your hope? If your hope rests in money or in your ability to work or to earn, or if it's in the success of the business, you've built your house upon sand. We all know companies downsize, businesses go bankrupt, bosses fire people they don't like, your body gets injured and diseased, unemployment benefits run out, stock markets crash. Do not place your hope in things that change. Hope in God. He never changes, He never fails. He has all resources at his command. And he always has his glory and the good of his children in view. So hope in God. But it's bone cancer. The pain is debilitating. I don't want to die. Oh, heart, where is your hope? If your hope lies in medical doctors, state-of-the-art oncology treatments, or health food, you have placed your hope on shifting sand. Hope in God. He is the great physician. Not one of the hairs of your head goes unnumbered. He determines the span of your life to the very second. He has all knowledge of healing medicine, all that is All that ever will be, and all knowledge that ever could be. And should the Sovereign One decide not to heal you, is it not far better to depart and be with Him than to remain here? He always has His glory and the good of His children in view, so hope in God. The afflictions of this life are light and momentary, says the Apostle Paul, who suffered much. And they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, for all this talk about hope, We have yet to define it. And it's a tricky word because of how we use it every day. I hope we can barbecue burgers this afternoon. I hope you get well soon. The meanings range from a simple wish to a strong expectation of desire. But what does it mean to hope in God? Well, here's a good definition, I think, of the kind of hope that we're talking about in this passage. Jonathan Edwards helped me with it, but I'm I'm not going to quote him because it would be very confusing. Hope is the exercise of faith in the promises of God or in our own future promised good. Hope is an exercise of faith in the promises of God in our, or in our own future promised good. In other words, hope is trusting in, resting in, relying upon, embracing the promises of God or the promises of God related to your future. That definition then helps us make a distinction between the I hope you get well soon hope and the I put my hope in what God promised in His Word, hope. So then, what was the promise? That begs the question, what was the promise that the psalmist had in mind in this passage? It's in the chorus. Verse 11, hope in God. For I shall again praise Him my salvation, and my God. That's the promise that this man held on to. I shall again praise him. The well-known Puritan Matthew Henry picked up on this exact thought. When the psalmist says, I shall again praise him, he is expressing trust or reliance. You can see the connection with faith from our definition. He is expressing trust, that God will receive glory from us. And further, we will one day experience such a change in our existence that we will not lack reasons for praise, nor will we lack the heart for praise. He wrote, It is the greatest honor and happiness of a man and the greatest desire and hope of every good man to be unto God for a name, And a praise. What is the crown of heaven's bliss but this, that there we shall be forever praising our God? And what is our support under our present woes but this, that we shall yet praise God? That our our present troubles shall not prevent nor abate our endless hallelujahs. So that is our first weapon. We appeal to our hearts to hope. And we do that on the solid ground of the promises of God. So, oh troubled soul, appeal to your heart to hope. Reason with your soul on the firm foundation of God's promises. And there are hundreds of glorious and comforting promises in the Word of God. You can always bank on this one, though, in times of sorrow. I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The second weapon for our spiritual armory is to appeal to your God. Appeal to your hearts. And appeal to your God. We find the psalmist's appeal or his prayer in chapter thirty-three, verses one forty-three through verses in verses one through four. I'll highlight three aspects of his appeal or his plea to God. The first two are in verse one. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. In our appeal to our God in times of trouble, we come to Him for defense. That's the first aspect of our plea: defense. Vindicate me and defend my cause. You know, usually we have the urge to defend ourselves. But our hope is in God. He's our God, or He's our salvation. And so we plead with Him to defend us. And we ask Him to shield us from our enemies, especially those of the spiritual kind. The second aspect of our appeal is for deliverance. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. In a way, this this prayer for deliverance becomes a great help to us in recognizing and remembering where our hope truly is rests and from whence to use an old word from whence our deliverance comes for if my bone cancer goes into remission god gets the glory not the oncologist because my hope is in god he delivers if he wills and he uses whatever resources he chooses he can heal with a single word And he can cause the blind to see by putting mud in his eyes. And he even uses medical doctors in modern medicine. Praise the Lord. And if I land a new job, God gets the glory, not me and my precious resume. Verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. In the middle of his plea to God... We see these elements of lament surface once again. You're the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? This man's external circumstances have not changed, but it is okay for the child to express his pain and to pour out his heart to his father who cares. In verse 3, we find the third aspect of our appeal to God. We appealed for defense. We appealed for deliverance. And now we're going going to appeal to God for direction. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. The appeal here is for God to bring light into the darkness in which we've been groping, to anchor what's happening to us in his truth. We plead for his light and his truth to give us direction, to guide us, and to lead us. It is a beautiful thing here that the direction the psalmist seeks is perfectly aligned with what God had promised. God had promised that He will again praise him. And his plea is that God would lead him to his holy hill, to his dwelling, into his presence to worship. So our second weapon is to appeal to God for those three things, to defend us, to deliver us, and to direct us. That is to lead us into his presence so we can once again praise our God if I had to summarize this morning's message in a single, if bland, sentence, it would be this. "O oh, troubled soul, appeal to your heart to hope and to your God to help. Of course, we added a lot of detail to those words, but that's the thrust of these two chapters. My concern, though, with a summary like that is that it can be misleading. Appealing to your heart must not be confused with a motivational speech you give yourself when life gets tough. The way we defined it, hope cannot be conjured. You can't talk yourself into this kind of hope. At its core, godly hope is an exercise of faith, which is a gift from God. Hope is a grace. It is a mercy that God bestows according to His good pleasure. There's a beautiful passage in 1 Peter that brings all of this together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, the dead. First, notice that this living hope is something that results from being born again. It is not something we do. It's something God does to us. It is something that He grants. It is new life granted by God's grace, by faith, in the finished work of Christ. So we must reject the idea that hope is something we can work up like soap lather in our hearts. No, hope is a gift from God. Second, the Apostle Peter wrote these words more than a thousand years after Psalm 42. The psalmist understood that the promises of God were certain and that he could hope in them because of what he knew of the character of of his God. But what the psalmist saw from afar and with little detail, Peter witnessed in person. He was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. And the resurrection here is crucial. Without it, there is no hope. In fact, Christians are most to be pitied if there is no resurrection. We could never then say with the psalmist, I shall praise you again. Because if there is no resurrection from the dead, that might not turn out to be true. So let me be crystal clear. When I say hope in God, I mean hope grounded in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins exactly as the scriptures foretold. God's promises never fail us. Jesus was buried He rose on the third day, again, exactly as promised by God in the Scriptures. The risen Jesus then appeared to hundreds of people, including the man who wrote those words. The hope of which I speak this morning is for those who have put their faith in the resurrected Jesus. It is for those who embrace, who rest in, trust in, rely upon, treasure Jesus alone to save them from the penalty and the guilt and the bondage of their sin. If that is not you, Psalm 42 will be of little help in your times of distress. For you are separated from this God. You are without Him and without hope in this world. The hope described in this psalm and the promises it holds out are for those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 4. We've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, there is a glorious promise to lay hold of. And now comes the connection to the suffering that we saw in Psalm 42. Peter gives us some reasons that God brings suffering into the lives of his children. Why he would allow Marie Duran to suffer unjustly in a stinking prison for 38 years. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. We rejoice over our inheritance, though now for a little while, your entire life, brothers and sisters, is but a little while in comparison to eternity If for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, and here's the reason, so that, here's why it was necessary. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there it is, the same thing the psalmist so deeply longed for, the presence and the praise of his God. God gets the glory, and he got the joy of his inheritance. So, distressed, troubled, disquieted, suffering soul. Use the spiritual weapons at your disposal to fight against utter despair in your times of suffering. Appeal to your heart to hope and appeal to your God to help. As the author of the book of Hebrews exhorts, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For yes, my suffering brothers and sisters, you shall again praise him, your salvation and your God. Let's pray. O oh, Father, I thank you for these marvelous words. Father, I thank you that that this man wrote these laments that we can read and that we can feel something of the despair that he was in. Father, I thank you that he didn't leave it that way, but that he gave us a path. He gave us some, some weapons so that we can fight despair when Trouble comes our way. Father, thank you. This is a precious, precious gift that you've included in your word for us. Father, help us. Help us this week to hope in you. Help us to lay hold of the glorious promises that you've laid out for us in your word, Father. Father, to do that work in our heart. Help us to hope in you. I pray this In the name of your son, Jesus, and only because of his resurrection, amen. At this time, if you have children in the children's ministry, you can go and get them and bring them back in to join us
2: for worship and communion while we sing this song. i stand together. We mm-hmm.